the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Sam Maupin engineering. Today we'll hear a conversation with Matthew Lamaster, author of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from uh, Aiken about sin and salvation. That's coming up at 5 o'clock, uh, second hour of today's program. And we'll also uh, consider uh, what al-Qaeda is doing in Afghanistan and what that says about our withdrawal from the area and future prospects of terrorist um, strikes here in the U.S. But first, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taiwan today, despite China warning of resolute and strong measures if the Democrat visited the island. Good for her. She went. Now, this is something of a legacy tour. My guess is the speaker recognizes that she most likely will not be speaker uh, in the future. And this is uh, a legacy trip to the uh, to Asia. Anyway, uh, the visit has inflamed tensions with China. They claim Taiwan is part of its territory. China views trips by foreign government officials to Taiwan as an acknowledgement of the island's sovereignty. And they warn the trip will have egregious political impact. Well, the speaker issued a statement shortly after her arrival, saying the visit honors America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. Our visit is one of several congressional delegations to Taiwan, and uh, in it uh, it in uh, no way contradicts longstanding United States policy, policy, she added. Pelosi's uh, visit makes her the highest ranking American official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Well, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and said that Washington's betrayal on the Taiwan issue is bankrupting its national credibility. Some American politicians are playing with fire on the issue of Taiwan, Wang said in a statement, according to AP. This will definitely not have a good outcome. The exposure of America's bullying face again shows it uh, as the world's biggest saboteur of peace. All of that for a visit. However, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said on Monday that the U.S. doesn't support Taiwan's independence. Well, there's something of a conflict there. On the one hand, we do support the democracy. We'll, in fact, we'll um, support them if China attempts to invade the island. So it's a bit confusing to me, but that's the official executive position. He went on to say that nothing has changed about our one China policy. We have repeatedly said that we oppose any unilateral changes to the status quo from either side. We have said that we do not support Taiwan independence, and we have said that we expect cross-strait differences to be resolved by peaceful means. Well, Kirby said Monday that the House Speaker can make her own decisions about the trip, saying Congress is an independent branch of government. Well, the president on Thursday affirmed that the U.S. stands firmly behind its one China policy, 26 Senate Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, signed a statement in support of Pelosi's trip. We support Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, the lawmaker said. For decades, members of the United States Congress, including previous speakers of the House, have traveled there. 
Uh, this travel is consistent with the United States' one-China policy to which we are committed. We're also committed now more than ever to all elements of Taiwanese Relations Act. Well, meanwhile, the Chinese military posted a video that was yesterday showing its forces conducting exercises with warships and fighter planes and launching missiles into the sky. China appears to be positioning itself to potentially take further steps in the coming days and perhaps over longer time horizons, Kirby said. He suggested that potential steps could include military provocations, operations that break historical norms, air or naval activities and military exercises. Meanwhile, the Chinese foreign minister issued a threat on Monday ahead of Pelosi's reported trip, saying the Chinese military will never sit idly by if Pelosi flies to Taiwan. Well, she flew. She's there. Now what? Last week, a reporter for the Chinese Community Party controlled Global Times said that Pelosi's plane should be shot down if she were to be accompanied by U.S. fighter jets to Taiwan. If U.S. fighter jets escort the speaker's plane into the country, it's an invasion. The PLA has the right to forcefully dispel Pelosi's plane and the U.S. jet fighters, including firing warning shots, making tactical movements of obstruction, the reporter said uh, on Twitter. Well, the speaker's visit to Taiwan is part of a larger trip. She's been in Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea and Japan. The stop in Taiwan was not officially announced in advance for reasons that may seem altogether obvious. Well, the People's Republic of China released a lengthy statement today. Of course, they condemned the arrival of the House Speaker to the island. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs published the statement in which the Chinese government accuses uh, the Speaker of uh, (laughs) undermining the U.S.-China relations and encouraging the separatist forces for Taiwan independence. Uh, The People's Republic uh, has long claimed sovereignty over the island and the Taiwan Strait and the relatively narrow strip of ocean between the island of Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. The U.S. does not have official relations with Taiwan, also known as the Republic of China, and maintains a one-China policy that recognizes the People's Republic of China as the legitimate successor nation. Well, following America's hasty withdrawal, a key terror plotter's death in Kabul raises questions about al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. We'll talk more about that later in the program. And threatening hellish ruins, that's a quote, the Iranian regime's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on Saturday said that it can develop a nuclear weapon within a rapid-fire amount of time and obliterate New York with ballistic missiles. The London-based Iran International News Organization reported that the uh, Bismichi Media, Radio Man Media, Telegram channel aired a short video titled, When Will Iran's Sleeping Warheads Awaken? End quote. The video said that the Islamic Republic of Iran is capable of building nuclear bombs in a compressed period of time if the U.S. or the Zionist regime make any stupid mistakes. Again, I'm quoting, the Iranian the- uh, theocratic state refers to Israel as the Zionist regime. The IRGC affiliated video said that Iranian ballistic missiles have the capability of turning New York into hellish ruins. And uh, we're negotiating that deal with them, as you might recall. Uh, Ain't over till it's over. The Inflation Reduction Act passage is not as simple as it appears for Democrat supporters. We'll follow that closely. Offering unwavering support, Axios touts President Biden's success story, claiming he hasn't done a dazzling job explaining to the public. So it's just that we misunderstand what a great job he's doing. In a difference of opinion, Senator Manchin disputes data that shows the social spending bill would raise taxes on the middle class during the recession. 
He says, oh, no, that's not going to happen. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Matthew Lamaster of Guilt and Grace. Well, in rank-and-file rumblings, Washington Post staffers anonymously ripped their boss in a vanity fair profile. And New York Times' Paul Krugman is being mocked for claiming the economy is experiencing a Biden boom. A federal judge on Monday sentenced a Texas man who brought a gun to the January 6th Capitol riot to a 7.25 years in prison. Uh, Guy Ruffett, a recruiter for the uh, militia group Texas Three Percenters, received the punishment, the longest sentence for any individual involved in the J6 to date, after the judge denied the Justice Department's request for a terrorism enhancement that would have yielded more prison time. In March, Reffitt was found guilty of five criminal counts, including obstructing the certification of the 2020 election results for Joe Biden and transporting a firearm to stir evil unrest. He didn't inflict physical violence that day and did not gain entrance into the Capitol building. In November of 2021, Jacobs Chansley, the so-called QAnon shaman, was sentenced to nearly three and a half years in federal prison after he was convicted of uh, corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. Reffitt was the first participant in the January 6th unrest who did not enter into the plea bargain after he was charged, opting instead to go directly to trial. His reluctance to admit early that his behavior is illegal is concerning. That's a quote from the district judge before issuing the decision. And I want to be very clear, under no legitimate definition of the term patriot does Mr. Reffitt's behavior on or around January 6th fit the term. It is the anti antithesis rather of the word well on january 6th he drove to washington dc with several guns one of which he took with him to the capitol steps as the chaos erupted calling it a partisan power push the save our state's founder says the left-wing media wants to abolish the electoral college because it hurts democrats and brooking no slackers google and facebook ceos issued a productivity warning to underperforming employees as america enters a recession On border security, five illegal immigration records have already been shattered in 2022 on Biden's watch. First, a grim milestone. The number of known migrant deaths at the border reached 609 so far this year, compared to 566 in all of 2021. This death toll does not include the number of bodies discovered in rugged desert areas further north of the border in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Second, from October 2021 to June 2022, the Border Patrol has logged some 2 million migrant encounters at the southern border, an all-time record. Third, in June alone, the Border Patrol apprehended 207,000 migrants, the most ever for that month. Fourth, the number of removals, formerly known as Uh, deportations plummeted to a record low from 267,258 in fiscal year 2019 to 59,000 in 2021. The sources within Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, expect even lower numbers this year. Deportations often exceeded 400,000 during the Obama years and 300,000 under Trump. Fifth, the number of visas, uh, visa application lawsuits filed by illegal immigrants has tripled to 6,200 this year compared to 2020. Would-be immigrants are now filing these uh, lawsuits because after President Joe Biden's unprecedented purge of immigration judges, they now think they can win their cases and stay in the U.S. regardless of the strength of their legal cases. 
And then there's this, which is not technically a record, but something of uh, definitively um, uh, different, something worthy of paying attention, likely related to the soaring number of visa lawsuits. The Vera Institute of Justice, an open borders nonprofit, just won a $171 million contract from the Biden administration, a record. The award, up about $30 million from the Trump era, is for the provision of legal representation to unaccompanied children smuggled into the uh, United States by the Mexican drug and human trafficking cartels. Children and adults pretending to be under 18 who are substantially flown and bussed away from the border to avoid the appearance of crowds. Vera's contract could be worth almost a billion dollars by 2027. Coincidentally, Vera led the way on calls to defund the police and it opposes uh, opposes immigration enforcement. President Biden is expected to address student loan forgiveness by the end of the month. It's August, and for student loan borrowers, that means one thing. President Joe Biden has one month to announce whether he'll be cutting their debt balances, and it will be a long-awaited announcement. While the president told reporters back in July that he will announce his decision for relief before payments resume in in September, rather. Borrowers, lawmakers, and student loan companies alike have been growing increasingly nervous as the clock continues to tick toward that date without any guidance from the White House. With a lot of uncertainty surrounding how effectively debt cancellation can be implemented on such short notice. Well, since the president said in April that he would make a decision on student loan forgiveness in the coming weeks, many borrowers have been anxiously awaiting details on what that relief will actually be and when it will impact them. While the only certainty Biden has given so far is what the relief will not be, $50,000 in debt cancellation, He's reportedly considering $10,000 in forgiveness for borrowers making under 150000 a year, an amount he pledged while on the campaign trail. Fox News weighs in, saying with Biden's poll numbers showing he is currently unpopular, even with his base leading into the November midterm elections, where control of Congress is at stake. The president's move on the issue of is critical. Progressives and civil rights groups are pushing for Biden to grant $50,000 in student loan forgiveness and no less. Activists seeking to wipe away debts argue that borrowers were bamboozled by universities and the federal government alike, leaving them with inadequate wages to cover the payments and keeping them from achieving life goals like home ownership. The NAACP, they delivered a letter to the president on Friday telling him the $50,000 must be the minimum level of forgiveness with no income bracket caps because black borrowers have virtually no realistic way to pay back in today's unjust economy, end quote. Republicans have pushed back hard on the proposal to cancel student debt, pointing to the cost, proposed income caps, the fact that borrowers chose to take on the payments and the ethics of requiring all taxpayers to foot the bill, the vast majority of whom are not college educated and make significantly less in terms of income, including those who um, never took on student loans, those who already paid their student loans off. Well, Iran threatens to uh, turn New York into a a ruin if the U.S. or the Zionist regime, meaning Israel, make any stupid mistakes. And a United States drone strike killed the al-Qaeda leader who helped plan the 9-11 attacks. President Biden plans to send another $550 million in military aid to Ukraine. Uh, the Hill reports that the U.S. is greenlighting another military assistance package to Ukraine, sending $550 million in ammunition for ad- advanced rocket systems and other equipment to the country to fight the Russian invasion. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby previewed the new um, 
assistance uh, package on Monday, saying that it would include ammunition for high mobility artillery rocket systems, uh, as well as ammunition for 155 mm artillery. Inside Defense says the transfer, which includes 75,000 rounds of 155 millimeter, millimeter ammunition, will come directly from the U.S. stocks and will be the 17th such drawdown ordered by President Biden since August of last year. In total, the United States has committed approximately $8.8 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since the beginning of the Biden administration. Since 2014, the United States has committed more than $10 billion in security assistance to the country. A report shows more and more Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. CNBC says inflation has been causing economic hardship for workers across all income levels. As of June, 61 percent of Americans, roughly 157 million adults, lived paycheck to paycheck, according to a new Lending Club report. That's up from 58 percent who reported living paycheck to paycheck in May. A year ago, the number of adults who felt stretched too thin was 55 percent. Even top earners have been struggling to make ends meet, the report found. Of those earning $200,000 or more, 36 percent reported living paycheck to paycheck, a jump from the previous month. The Daily Wire says to help address the problem, Senate Democrats recently unveiled the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. However, a Penn Wharton study released Friday shows that the bill could lead to a slight increase in inflation over the next two years, doing the exact opposite of what its name suggests. To make matters worse, for most Americans, Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee released data Saturday from the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation that indicated that Inflation Reduction Act would increase taxes in the calendar year 2023 for everyone except those making between $10,000 and $30,000 per year. Well, on monkey, monkey pox, New York City's mayor has declared a state of emergency well, Dr. Leanna Wynn urges the uh, the country to follow suit. Well, monkeypox cases continue to rise in New York City, prompting officials to declare a public health emergency on Saturday while estimating that approximately 150,000 Big Apple residents face possible exposure. The emergency declaration went into effect immediately and has allowed state's health department to issue orders under the New York City Health Code and access more funds and resources to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, New York's Department of Health reported at least 1,383 cases in July. Of those numbers, the New York City alone makes up uh, 1,289 cases. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention confirmed that the United States has at least 5,000 reported cases of monkeypox, which uh, spreads rather through skin-to-skin and extended uh, face-to-face contact, hugging, kissing, and sexual uh, contact. Symptoms include fever, headache, Uh, Cough, sore throat, nasal congestion, and the disease can also cause painful rashes and blisters. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, Matthew Lamaster, author of Guilt and Grace. We'll also take a look at... uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, after we were told they would not be there and there was an agreement struck between the Taliban and the United States. And the administration has declared open season on religious hospitals that object to gender transitions. There's an important hearing on Thursday. We'll tell you more about that in the second hour. Well, the Wall Street Journal reports that Russia allocated troops to the south to maintain the occupied territory. Russia is uh, responding or repositioning troops to strengthen their hand and 
the south or uh, southern part of Ukraine, shifting forces from the front line to uh, in the northern Donbass, according to the Ukrainian and British militaries, ahead of a planned offensive in the south. Ukraine's southern command said Russian battle groups were being deployed um, and uh, the southern part of the, the country um, that lie to the north of the territory fully controlled by Moscow. The Associated Press says that while the bulk of Russian and Ukrainian military assets are concentrated in the Donbass, the industrial region of mines and factories, both um, uh, sides hope to make gains elsewhere. Ukraine has vowed to drive the Russians from the territory they've seized since the start of the invasion, including the southern region of Kherson and part of another region, while Moscow has pledged to hold on to the occupied areas and to take more ground around the country. The war in Ukraine is still ongoing, not on the headlines, but it's still being fought. In a prisoner swap, uh, there was a counteroffer. Russia also wants convicted murderer Vadim Krasikov in the Griner Whalen uh, trade. Russia has uh, countered the U.S. State Department's offer of a prisoner swap for the release of the WNBA player and the former Marine. In addition to Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, also known as the Merchant of Death, Russia is also asking for Vadim Krasikov. CNN reports that Krasikov was convicted in December of murdering a former Chechen fighter in Berlin's uh, Kleiner Tier Garden in 2019 and sentenced to life in prison. The request was seen as problematic for several reasons, the source uh, told the CNN. Among them, Krasikov remains in German custody as such, and because the request was not communicated formally, but rather through the FSB back channel, the U.S. government didn't view it as a legitimate counter to the U.S. offer, which was first revealed by CNN on Wednesday. Los Angeles County has opened government jobs for those who are in the country illegally. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously with no discussion to allow the county to no longer require U.S. citizenship for government jobs. The policy includes exceptions for positions where U.S. citizenship is required by state and federal law. The motion was authored by the chair of the um, committee and co-authored by a member of the, the committee. The vote took place last week. Those wishing to work for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as well as any peace officer hired by the county, will still be subject to citizenship requirements. According to the adopted motion, the new policy ensures that applicants from employment are fairly and equitably considered without regard to national origin, citizenship, or other non-merit factors that are not substantially related to successful performance of the duties of the position. That's a report from the Los Angeles Daily News. Breitbart says that Los Angeles County Public Defender Ricardo Garcia was requiring citizenship to work for the city government in uh, is tantamount to discrimination based on cultural, racial, ethnic or religious characteristics. Well, a J6 rider gets seven years in prison, the first and longest. Fact checkers are flagging social media posts criticizing the president's recession redefinition and yet another demonstration that Facebook's fact checkers are nothing more than Thought police from one side of the political continuum, users platform uh, posts decrying Joe Biden's redefinition of recession were flagged as false information. PolitiFact, one of the leftist uh, third party fact checkers used by Meta, owner of Facebook and Instagram, labeled two claims that the White House had changed the definition of recession as partly false information. The post in question published screenshots of the White House blog from the 21st of July that stated, while some maintain that two consecutive quarters of 
uh, falling real GDP constitute a recession? That is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle, end quote. One of the posts included the message, even if Thursday's GDP report shows a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, you won't hear the Biden administration using the R word. Well, PolitiFact declared, no, the White House didn't change the definition of recession and then went to bat for the administration by claiming that the two consecutive quarters of falling GDP is not an official definition, but merely a common colloquialism. Wow. This is PolitiFact revealing that it's more concerned about pushing a political narrative over and against the facts. That's the era that we live in. Emails accentuate the president's elector plan. Dozens of recently released emails sent by Trump administration officials following the 2020 election shed more light on the so-called fake electors plan. In the several states that Trump narrowly lost, states he contended had engaged in election fraud, a plan was put into place wherein alternative electors were chosen just in case the election results were changed after the December 14th elector deadline, but prior to January 6th. The term fake elector is used in several of the emails in reference to the alternative electors. Furthermore, according to an email from Trump campaign lawyer Jack Willinchick, the existence of these fake electors was to have been kept secret until the 6th of January and then sprung onto Congress as it counted electoral votes. That plan, of course, never happened. Furthermore, that was anything other than an idea for a contingency plan in the event Trump's challenge of the election results had been successful appears dubious. It seems once again that the J6 committee, with the uh, media's help, is continuing to spin an insurrection plot where uh, none existed. As the Trump campaign's official intention regarding the alternative elector states on the understanding that if, as a result of the final non-appellate court order or other proceeding prescribed by law, we are ultimately recognized as being the duly elected and qualified electors, end quote. Well, Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan, as we mentioned, defying China's warning to force a response. The Manchin um, reconciliation package includes EV tax credits he once called ludicrous, but things change over time. Hitting back, Ukraine's forces are poised to take the offensive in the South against Russia. And California declares a state of emergency over monkeypox. Democrats fixate on same-sex marriage while the country crumbles. And declaring it not safe, England plans to shut down the only gender clinic for minors while President Biden pushes child sex changes. Germany has three months to save itself from a winter gas crisis. And scientists are baffled as the Earth spins faster than usual. Well, on this day in history, 1876, Wild Bill Hickok is shot and killed while playing poker at a saloon in Deadwood, Dakota Territory by Jack McCall. McCall would be hanged as a result. Not just a movie, apparently. 1921, the jury in Chicago acquits several former members of the Chicago White Sox baseball team and two others of conspiring to defraud the public in the notorious Black Sox scandal linked to the 1919 World Series. 1923, Warren G. Harding, the 29th president of the United States, dies while in office of a heart attack in San Francisco. Vice President Calvin Coolidge becomes president. 1939, Albert Einstein signs a letter to President Franklin D. Roosevelt urging creation of an atomic weapons research program. 1939, President Roosevelt signs the Hatch Act, which prohibits civil service employees from taking an active part in political campaigns. 1974, former White House counsel John W. Dean III is sentenced 
to one to four years in prison for obstruction of justice in the Watergate cover-up. Dean would serve up to four months. 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait, seizing control of the oil-rich emirate. The Iraqis were later driven out by a U.S.-led coalition in Operation Desert Storm. 2000, Republicans nominate Texas Governor George W. Bush to lead the 2000 presidential ticket at the party's convention in Philadelphia and ratify former Defense Secretary Dick Cheney as his running mate. 2018, Pope Francis changes uh, Roman Catholic Church teaching on capital punishment, decreeing that the death penalty is inadmissible under all circumstances. Also in 2018, Apple becomes the world's first publicly traded company to be valued at $1 trillion. 2019, President Trump decides to withdraw from the U.S., rather withdraw the U.S. from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or INF, the historic arms control treaty signed by President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Officer Daniel Pantelio, the New York City cop charged in the 2014 death of Eric Garner, should be fired, a judge recommends. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, there is a great concert coming. Yes, Fish Fest is returning in 2022. Our sister station, 104.1 The Fish, presents Fish Fest 2022 at the Salem Riverfront Park on the 20th of this month. You can see five great artists on one stage, Toby Mac, Mac Powell, We Are Messengers, Cochran and & Company, and Katie Nicole. Uh, Everything you need to know about all these wonderful shows with links to buy tickets is on our website at kpdq.com. And a reminder, Destined for Victory with Paul Shepard is now part of our regular program lineup Monday through Friday following the Georgine Rice Show right here at 6 p.m. You can join us every weekday immediately following the program. You'll be informed and inspired by practical down-to-earth teaching blended with humor from Pastor Paul Shepard. Learn more about this show and the ministry, again, at kpdq.com. Well, today's primaries are among the busiest in the 2022 midterm primaries. Five states in total are holding primaries, Arizona, Michigan, Missouri, Kansas, and Washington. From um, more ways to gauge how much sway and endorsement from former President Donald Trump has to direct ballot measures about abortion access to the last remaining House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, Some of the races to watch in Arizona in the Senate and the governor's race. Uh, They are the primary for Senate and governor and secretary of state are a major test of the uh, former president's influence over the Republican Party. Uh, Voters there, uh, particularly Republican voters, will be picking their nominees. But the future direction of the GOP is also at stake. And Tuesday's results from Arizona could be a preview of the conservative brand that may take center stage in the 2024 presidential election. In the Senate, the former president has backed 35-year-old Blake Masters, a venture capitalist who was the chief operating officer for an investment firm and the president of uh, the, the foundation. He spent about $15 million uh, to support Masters, uh, according to filing with the Federal Elections um, com- uh, Commission. Masters' primary opponent includes a businessman. Two polls this week indicate that Masters was a comfortable, uh, in a comfortable lead um, into the primary tonight. But again, we'll find out if the endorsement from the former president will be meaningful. 
Um, let's see. In other races on Tuesday, uh, let's see. What do we got here? Two polls this week indicate uh, in that race, um, Trump endorsed Masters in late June, a poll of likely Republican voters uh, from uh, OH Predictive on Sunday showed uh, Masters at 36 percent and his opponent at 21 percent. I'm looking for some others here. Uh, the winner in Tuesday's primary will take an incumbent uh, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, the former astronaut who seat his top target for Republicans. Kelly's raised about fifty five point eight million this cycle and spent about twenty five uh, million cash on hand in the GOP race for governor former TV news anchor Carrie Lake and lawyer Karen Taylor Robeson are in a tight contest that repeats a dynamic between Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence Uh, Trump has backed Lake while Pence along with uh, term limited sitting governor Doug Ducey have backed Taylor Robeson Uh, last month Trump and Pence held dueling rallies for the pair on the same day and while Lake has led um, in the majority of the polls, an Emerson College poll on Sunday showed a dead heat between the two, with Lake uh, just uh, up by one percentage point. So, again, it's uh, interesting because it's a test of the influence the former president uh, will have and perhaps a gauge of whether or not he intends to run, um, announcing, one would presume, after the midterm elections or not. We'll continue to follow that story and find out what these primaries yield, including, as I mentioned, the state of Washington. Well, Kansas is holding the nation's first test of voter feelings about the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. Well, people statewide deciding today whether to allow their conservative legislature to further restrict or ban abortion in the state. The referendum on the proposed a pro-life amendment to the Kansas Constitution is being closely watched as a barometer of liberal and moderate voters' anger over the June ruling overturning the nationwide right to abortion, the so-called constitutional amendment or constitutional right. But the outcome might not reflect broader sentiments in the country as a whole, given how conservative Kansas is and how twice as many Republicans as Democrats have voted in its uh, August primaries over the last decades. Whether or not this issue will motivate more on the other side of the issue remains to be seen. Supporters of the the measure would say before the vote whether they intend to pursue a ban if it passes, but uh, they've spent um, decades pushing for new restrictions on the nearly annual basis, and many other states in the Midwest and South have uh, already banned abortion in recent weeks. By not stating their position, they're seeking to win voters uh, who favored some restrictions but not an outright ban. Abortion rights advocates, they expect the legislature to ban abortion if the ballot measure passes. And in a surge of early voting, the electorate was more Democratic than usual. So we'll see what happens. A 128-year-old, a physical therapist, uh, voted Tuesday against the abortion measure. Abortion is health care, she says, and the government shouldn't have a say on whether women receive what could be life-saving care. Which is, it's a very popular statement, but the percentage of women who seek abortions for that purpose, an ectopic pregnancy, for example, has nothing to do with Roe versus Wade and abortion on demand. But nonetheless, that's the, um, that's kind of the go-to reason to allow abortion on demand, the vast majority of which is for convenience sake. Uh, polls were busier than usual for the primary election, with lines reported at some locations Tuesday morning. Typically, primary elections in Kansas are limited to the two major parties, but unaffiliated voters can cast a vote in this election for the constitutional amendment. Advanced in-person voting and mail ballots were up in, in the uh, large counties of Sedgwick, Johnson, and 
uh, Wyandotte uh, counties compared to the 2018 primary election. So, again, it will be interesting to see what happens and perhaps a gauge of what to expect uh, moving forward. Um, An anonymous group that sent a misleading text to Kansas voters telling them to vote yes in order to protect choice was suspended late Monday from the uh, messaging platform Twilio, I'm not familiar with that one, disabling its ability to send new messages, the spokesman said. The uh, the platform, without publicly identifying the sender, said it determined the account violated its acceptable use policy that prohibits the spread of disinformation. So a bit of censorship uh, on that um, on that uh, platform, the Kansas City Star reported that the next uh, the text rather went to voters across the state, including former Democratic Governor Kathleen Sebelius, Kansans for Constitutional Freedom. The main vote no campaign called the text an example of desperate and deceitful tactics. Well, the Kansas Secretary of State's office said that it has received phone calls about the text from the general public and acknowledges their concerns. However, state law does not authorize the office to regulate campaign ads or messaging. The Kansas Governatorial uh, Governmental Ethics Commission also posted on Twitter that uh, under current law, text message advocacy about constitutional ballot initiatives does not require attribution. Well, the uh, Kansas measure would add language to the state's constitution saying that it does grant a right, uh, does not rather grant a right to abortion, which would allow lawmakers to regulate it as they see fit. The people would decide. Kentucky will vote in November on adding similar language to its constitution. Meanwhile, Vermont will decide in November whether to add an abortion rights provision to its constitution. A similar question is likely headed to the November ballot in Michigan. The Kansas measure is a response to a state Supreme Court decision in 2019 that declared that access to abortion is a matter of bodily autonomy and a fundamental right under the state's Bill of Rights. So not uh, referring to the U.S. Constitution, but the state's Bill of Rights. Well, both sides uh, together have spent more than $14 million on their campaigns. Abortion providers and abortion rights groups were key donors for the no side, while Catholic dioceses heavily funded the yes campaign. And even though some early votes favor banning nearly all abortions, the Vote Yes campaign pitched its measure as a way to restore lawmakers' power to set reasonable abortion limits and preserve existing restrictions. Well, Kansas doesn't ban most abortions or uh, until the 22nd week of pregnancy, but a law that would prohibit the most common second-term procedure and another that would set special health regulations for abortion providers remain on hold because of legal challenges. Well, uh, Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, weighed in on the Kansas vote uh, yesterday, saying if it passes, tomorrow's vote in Kansas could lead to another state eliminating the right to choose and eviscerating access to health care. That's the new way of referring to abortion health care. The Republican controlled legislature has had anti-abortion or pro-life majority since the early 90s. Kansas hasn't uh, done uh, hasn't gone further in restricting abortion because abortion opponents have felt constrained either by past federal court decisions or because the governor was a Democrat like Governor Laura Kelly, who was elected in 2018. So these are some of the uh, uh, the races and decisions to watch in today's heavy primary that includes uh, the state of Washington. And we'll try to uh, cover that tomorrow, some of the outcomes in these uh, critical races. We've got news and traffic coming up in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Matthew Lemaster, author of Guilt and Grace. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I know in polite company, and for that matter, in impolite company, we don't like to talk about the subject of sin. But unless we understand it, come to grips with it, we'll never fully appreciate the length and the depth and the breadth of God's grace. Well, my next guest has written a book on the subject, Both Grace and Sin. It's titled, Of Guilt and Grace. 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation. Matthew Lamaster is my guest. He is the pastor of Southern Heights Christian Church in Anderson, Indiana. He is the editor of Theology Magazine and a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. He's also a doctoral student at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. He joins us today to talk about his book in what I hope will be polite company of guilt and grace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Georgine. It's such an honor to be with you. Well, it's an honor to have you. You know, this subject of sin is one that we really don't like to approach. We don't like to talk about the the dark edge of it, the consequences of it. Um, And yet, as you point out in your book, if we fail to do that, we are going to fail to fully appreciate the, the depth of God's grace. You've written on this subject, what motivated you to take it on? Uh, in a, a culture and a time when we're really loath to to talk much about sin. <laughs> well, that's a good, that's a very good question. There's a, a, a easy answer and then a, a little bit more complex answer. But the easy answer is, I was preaching through the Book of Joshua and I was um, preaching on this passage. And what's funny is, I you know a couple of people I knew who had preached through Joshua, their pastor had skipped this chapter. <laughs> in the book of Joshua when he was preaching on it. And uh, I just felt, as I came across it, though, I just, I was shocked by how important it was and how hopeful it really was if you thought about it in uh, all its implications. But the, the longer term answer is, or the long, more complex answer is that, you know, I'm a pastor. And so um, for better or for worse, I get to see up front and up close um, a lot of people's uh, sin in a lot of ways manifest themselves, and they never. Part of the reason that they never experience breakthrough or forgiveness, part of the reason that they never experience hope um, and uh, and peace about that sin, is because they've never they've never really reckoned with what sin actually is, and they've never really considered how it damages other people. And so those those are some of the some of the many reasons I thought it was a good book for the time. Now, has the church contributed to this um, tendency to not really take sin as seriously as we ought? <laughs> uh, I, I think some pastors, that's a very good question. I think some pastors have preached a message um, that is a lot more about meeting felt needs um, and telling people, tickling people behind their ear, like Second Timothy says, than preaching the, the word of God in all of its. Um, audacity and all of its scandal and all of its hope. And so um, I, I think there are many, many uh, faithful preachers who have been faithfully preaching the Word of God in year in and year out. But the ones that you hear about, the ones who get invited to uh, big conferences, the ones who um, very often are the most popular are the ones that shy away from this message. So I do think, unfortunately, often churches have contributed to this problem. Your, the title of your book is Of Guilt and Grace, which puts this in the context of a relationship with God. It, it emphasizes the notion that we are accountable to him and what we do matters, uh, and that he has already made provision for what inevitably will be our 
our sin. What ultimately do you want your readers to um, to emphasize as they're reading the book about um, ourselves and God, our relationship and our accountability to Him? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. I do think whenever you're reading a book, you want to. Maybe you're like this, Georgine. Whenever I'm reading a book, I kind of sometimes flip to the end to see what's coming. I know that's not. I know that's not a good practice. You do that, Georgine. I, I do. do that. <laughs> um, and uh, what, when people are reading my book, I think they maybe will be tempted to do that because it does um, it does hit you. It's really heavy, um, but the heaviness is good. But there is hope at the end. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more that we reckon with our sin, the more that we see it in all of its ghastliness and its its darkness, the more brilliant the light of the glory of Christ becomes. And so... Um, as they're reading my book, um, I, my hope is that they will be that they will expect that 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 the end of it is um, just as good news as the rest of it is bad news. Yeah, yeah. Now you go to the book of Joshua. Many of us are familiar with the book, but then you go to what some might describe as sort of an obscure character in that book, Aiken. Can yeah. you give us a little bit of the backdrop of that story? Yeah. Well, um, that's a very good question. Aiken was, uh, we, we actually don't know that much about him. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to reconstruct him, you kind of have to have a little bit of, a, a little bit of, um, imagination, I guess, but Aiken was probably one of the more elderly, more respected citizens. He was a, of the tribe of Judah and one of the, um, one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah from what we can ascertain, you know, he had he had a big family, so he's the head of his clan, and um, and so he was, you know, a well-to-do, respected, prominent person in the people of Israel, probably an experienced uh, veteran of, of many wars, and so he would have been looked on as kind of a role model in his community, um, and he would have been um, uh, someone who a lot of people would have looked up to, which is why when he sins by stealing um, goods and gold from the city of uh, Jericho when the people of Israel invaded and they conquered Jericho, um, which is why it was so much more destructive because of the influence that he had. Now, the interesting thing is he committed the crime, but he was very reluctant to acknowledge and ultimately to confess his crime. He rejected what was available to him to resolve this issue, at least between him and God. Uh, And we can learn a great deal by his, or rather from his response to the events that he himself were responsible for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I I think that's always true when people hide stuff, when they hide their sin, when they hide their shame from others, it has um, really destructive effects. And so part of the reason I think that this story is even told in the book of Joshua, because you're right, it's very obscure. And uh, he is very, you know, like as you so rightfully pointed out, a lot of preachers avoid these kinds of topics. Um, and yet, I think it's provided there to help us learn from his mm-hmm. example in a negative way, you know. And uh, I think it makes the example of other people in the book of Joshua, like Rahab, or like the Gibeonites, or like Caleb, all the more um, impressive. So it kind of colors all the other characters. It's really amazing. Now, the way you structure your book is you 
um, highlight the, the 10 things that we learn from uh, Aiken and his sin and his response to the grace that could have been available to him. Can you describe for our mm-hmm. listeners, and when we come back from our break in about a minute, we'll go through these 10, but kind of describe how you uh, dissect Aiken's story and what we can glean from his failure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, so So, simple, could you simplify the question a little bit, Georgine? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm just inviting you to kind of describe for our listeners how you structured the book that helps us walk through each of the yeah. lessons we learned from Aiken. Yeah, um, uh, that that's a very good question. The first uh, the first couple chapters are a little bit more kind of background. So the first three three chapters or so are a little bit more just kind of background, describing everything that is kind of happened and kind of help people understand the implications. And then the rest of the lessons are just following the rest of the story, and so they're just kind of walking through the story of Achan and Joshua seven of how the um, of all the the wicked things that he did and how it affected everybody else. And so that's kind of how, uh, that's kind of where I found the structure is, is just kind of by picking it, not picking it out, but, you know, walking alongside the story of Achan and scripture to, uh, to come to it. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return in a moment to continue our conversation with Matthew Lemaster. The book is titled Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Achan About Sin and salvation. And I love the balance between the two. It's not just about sin. It's about salvation, which is the good news in the story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Matthew Lemaster. He's the author of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation. There's a great deal we can learn from a very brief story in uh, in a book that we don't uh, perhaps read as often as other books, uh, the book of Joshua. One of the first things you write about Aiken is that sin is anything but simple. We tend to underestimate it. We tend to minimize it. But as you point out in this chapter on the sin of Achan, it's anything but simple. Why do we tend to, um, we're, first of all, we're reluctant to talk about it, but we're, we also tend to um, understate uh, or under-evaluate the significance of our own sin? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Georgine. Um, I think one of the reasons that we're just so reluctant to understand what sin is, is because it maybe the simplest way to put it is it just, it hurts, you know, it hurts to see how deep the, how deep the rabbit hole goes, how deep the roots Mm -hmm. of sin really go into my heart. And so if I just say, I know that I'm a sinner and that's all I have to say. And I don't really think about how, about the sin underneath the sin, you know, if I don't think about those things, then I don't have to go through that. But the process of reflection is good and it's important and it's necessary because that's what leads to repentance. Um, and so I think part of the reason that we don't consider why sin, uh, we don't consider the complexity of sin is, um, because we don't like to think those things about ourselves. <laughs> uh, we don't like to, to think about how destructive it can be. And we don't yeah. like to think, we don't like to think that, you know, I'm really that bad. We like to think that about other people, but we don't like yeah. to think it about ourselves. You suggest that we often believe our best intentions somehow excuse our offenses. Can you talk a bit about yeah. that, whether or not that's a legitimate perspective or not so much? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, that is a very 
Very, very good question, Georgine. Um, and uh, you're not the first person to ask me about that, that part of the book. Um, yeah, the the reality is uh, sometimes sometimes our intentions are not nearly as good as we think they are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think maybe if, not that this would ever happen to you, Georgine, but for some of us who maybe have gotten into arguments or heated discussions with our spouse, <laughs> Never happened. Nope. <laughs> Never. Not maybe not to you. No. Nope, no. Nope. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'll say, well, I didn't mean to say that. Um, and uh, maybe I think that's true in the moment. <laughs> but, uh, chances are, I don't realize what I actually meant to say, um, and I don't really understand all my motives. But even if that were true, even if I was telling the truth that I didn't mean to say to do that. Um, that wouldn't mean that it was a perfectly excusable action. You know, the the story that I use uh, as an illustration in the um, in the book is the story of uh, just the most cringeworthy episode of television that's ever been made. The office of uh, Scott's pot, where uh, the manager Michael Scott promises to this uh, poor, under-resourced um, elementary school that if all the kids graduate high school. That he'll pay for their college education and he can oh man have you ever seen that episode uh it makes it's so awful it makes it's uh it's so dark but it's so funny and uh anyway so they they uh promise that they're gonna he promises that he's gonna help them graduate but of course he can't do that there's no way that he's ever going to be able to pay that he's a middle manager at a struggling uh paper company <laughs> so even though he maybe had the best of intentions, uh, or so he thought anyways, uh, that didn't make it a legitimate action. <laughs> that just, uh, it, if anything, it just made it worse because he was so naive about what he was doing. And so um, that's kind of what I mean by it is just because we have the best of intentions, if we actually did, it, which, you know, of course, we don't actually have the best of intentions. But even if we did, that wouldn't make something that is wrong right. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm getting at there. Yeah. A great example. I, I just turned inadvertently to the office just last night. So it's kind of funny that you oh. bring that, that reference up. Oh, did you really? That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a brilliant TV show. Yeah, that's funny. Well, your chapters are sin is against God. Sin affects others. It hurts others but that God acts on our sin. Again, we tend to underestimate the scope of what we have done. That's an offense ultimately to God, but has an impact on others. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, that relationship with God and how our sin impacts our own circumstances and others far beyond what we might have imagined? In fact, in a Bible study I attended just this last week, one of the points that was being made was we don't have the choice uh, to determine the uh, consequence of our sin, we engage in sin and the rest of it is completely out of our hands and it can spiral out of control in ways that we couldn't imagine. Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit could not have imagined the fallout. So can you talk a bit about that, that fallout? Yeah. Well, I, oh, that's such a good question, Georgine. I, you know, I think we, we tend to think about sin like, um, almost like I'm just drawing money out of a bank account, you know, like, okay, I know what I did wrong. I'll, I'll pay the penalty. I'll fess up. Um, but the reality is that's not, that's not how we actually think about ourselves. Like we're not transactional creatures. We live in a complex 
interrelationship uh, web uh, of personality. We, we live that way with each other. We live that way with our spouse and with our kids and our employers and neighbors. And we live that like we're in the we're created by God to be in a relationship with God. And so when there's something that goes wrong with us, if we're truly human, it can't just go wrong with us. It has to go wrong with those relationships that we have with others. And so necessarily our sin is going to have consequences on others. Um, and necessarily our sin is going to have consequences on, um, on our relationship with God. And I think people, not just, I think, I, I know people don't like to think about sin that way. They, they don't like to think this person is suffering because of what I did. But the reality is until we face that, we'll just keep creating the same situation over and over and over and over again, because sin is, it, it, it affects all of our relationships. And I think people, I, I mean, maybe, I, I think people think that it is cruel of God to, um, to act on our sin. I think people, they just think that no, there's no way that a God, a God would ever do that. There's no way that a God would really address sin. But the reality is, if God loves his creation, which he does, then he has to act on it, on, on our sin. He has to act on it. Because sin has caused, it's like this cause this ripple effect. It's this tornado that has just kind of sucked everything in. And if God loves his creation, then God has to put a stop to it. And so um, I, I think people think it's cruel, but it, it's really, it's not. And, and it's kind of God to reveal our sin and expose it. I mean, that's what people, that's probably what people just don't understand is that God, God's exposing our sin, the the husband who gets caught watching pornography, the kid who gets caught lying to his parents, the the um, the employer who gets caught embezzling money, that getting caught, that being revealed is actually God's grace. God is actually trying to step into the situation to provide redemption. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not trying to hide it, you know? And if he was, that would be cruel of him because he's just allowing people to continue to hurt each other. And so, um, God acts on our sin because he loves us. And that's hard for people to see sometimes, but yeah. it is so true. So yeah. true. Your ninth chapter is simply sin leads to death, which is the ultimate penalty. But you end the book with God's grace being available every step of the way. And I'd like to end our conversation on that very fact that God's grace is available throughout yeah. uh, the, yeah. the this process of sin and um, the fallout and the consequence and all of that, God's grace is available. Oh, I'm so glad that you, that we're, we're at this point because um, I'm a, I'm a grace guy. <laughs> I'm a, <laughs> I'm a gospel guy. I, I'm not a, 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 I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher most of the time. I mean, sometimes you gotta get people's blood flowing, <laughs> but uh, most of the time I'm, I'm all about God's grace and the, the thing that I just think is so perhaps the most shocking to me about this story and just how audacious it is. And, and that was, that's what makes it all the more, this is what makes it all the more tragic is that um, God had actually provided for Joshua's sin before Joshua had ever been, or for Achan's sin before Joshua mm-hmm. was ever uh, took place. I mean, th- that uh, word that it says that it says that he broke faith. That same word is um, involved in the sacrificial system earlier in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. 
And God provided for redemption for just such things of people breaking faith with God. And so there was forgiveness and redemption to be had. It, it was right there, and Achan wouldn't take it. And I think he was stubborn. I think he was unwilling. Uh, I think he was so bitter that he hated God and he didn't want to take grace. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't. You know, it, Aiken's story does not have to be our story. That's right. God has grace lifted out for us and it's available to anyone who wants it. He's made a way through his son, Christ, and anybody can have it as soon as they just reach out and put their faith in Jesus. Well, once again, the book is titled Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation, with an emphasis on that word salvation because of God's grace. Matthew Lamaster, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate you and I appreciate the book. Thank you so much, Georgine. It's such an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you probably heard, al-Zawahiri, Osama bin Laden's deputy and a mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks, has been killed in a U.S. drone strike. Now, we don't have any personnel on the ground to confirm that, but according to intelligence that the United States has access to, he is dead. Well, according to sources, the good news is that one of the world's most notorious terrorists is no longer with us. The bad news is that one year after the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, Sawahiri's presence in the capital of Kabul confirms fears that the country again would become a safe haven for international terrorists. Now, you might recall that the president said uh, about a year ago, uh, or it was 11 months ago, the president um, uh, surrendered and retreated from Afghanistan and said, my fellow Americans in a primetime speech on Saturday at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan that killed Amir al-Qaeda uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. You know, al-Zawahiri was on bin Laden's, uh, was his leader. He was with him um, all the, the time. He said it differently. He was his number two man, his deputy at the time uh, of the terrorist attack on 9-1-1. He was deeply involved in planning 9-11, one of the most responsible for the attacks that murdered 2,977 people on American soil. He was also involved in other attacks against America, including bombings at our embassies in Tanzania and Kenya in 98. Indeed, al-Zawahiri was an evil man, the president went on to say, and we're glad that he's now facing eternal justice for his crimes. And the president was right. We make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and will take you out, end quote. Yet the message of his presidency and that of his former boss, Barack Obama, has been one of the opposite uh, effect. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But earlier this year, intelligence revealed that Zawahiri's family had moved to a posh neighborhood inside Kabul, once used by foreign diplomats. He later was confirmed to be residing on the premises. When an opportunity presented itself, the administration approved a CIA operation to strike Zawahiri on the 30th of July, likely with two specialized drones launched. Uh, they're called Hellfire missiles. A CIA team on the ground reportedly confirmed Zawahiri was the only person killed in the strike. The Taliban denounced the strike 
claiming it violated the Doha agreement that the terrorist group signed with the United States to set the terms for the U.S. withdrawal. Of course, in that same agreement, the Taliban uh, pledged to prevent any group or individual in Afghanistan from threatening the security of the United States and its allies and will prevent them from recruiting, training and fundraising and will not host them. Well, according to a White House background briefing, senior Taliban figures were aware of Zawahiri's presence in Kabul, of course. Eliminating one of the world's most wanted terrorists is uh, uh, in an operation with no civilian casualties was an unmitigated victory for the U.S. But the operation and Zawahiri's presence in Kabul raises some important questions. Now, the most interesting questions relate to the logistics of the operation and the source of intelligence. We tipped off the CIA as to Zawahiri's whereabouts. More interesting, whose airspace was uh, transited to get the drone in a position for the strike? Islamabad insists that Pakistani government was not consulted. Was Pakistani airspace used without the government's permission? One wonders, was a secret deal cut or did the drone approve, uh, approach rather via one of the Central Asian countries with or without their permission? Well, the far more concerning questions relate to Zawahiri's presence in Kabul at all. And the nexus between al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Haqqani network. When the Taliban marched on uh, Kabul last August, it was quickly evident that the Haqqani uh, network, a hyper-violent terrorist group that uh, predated and later merged with the Taliban, had emerged as the greatest victor of the Afghan war. Outmaneuvering the traditional Afghan Taliban leadership, Haqqani network leader, the son of the group's infamous founder, assumed control over internal security in Afghanistan and appointed other Haqqani network leaders to senior posts in the new government. This was bad news. Throughout the course of the Afghan war, the Haqqani network was implicated in the bloodiest and most high-profile terrorist attacks on U.S. and Afghan government targets. The Haqqani network is also favored. Um, uh, it's a militant group of Pakistan's inter-service intelligence agency, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff called the Hikana Network, uh, Network rather, a veritable arm of the Pakistani intelligence. And former Senator Bob Corker out of Tennessee publicly claimed that the Hakanis receive protection and medical care inside Pakistan. Uh, the network was the first Afghan militant group to embrace suicide bombings, was implicated in the single deadliest attack on a CIA in the organization's history, as well as multiple attacks on the U.S. and Indian embassies in Afghanistan and an international hotel in Kabul. Well, after assuming operational leadership of the the Haqqani network from his ailing father in the mid-2000s, the new leader published a manifesto advocating global jihad outside Afghanistan's borders. The network ostensibly was overseeing security in the Afghan capital in August of last year when a suicide bomber killed 13 U.S. military service members and over 170 Afghan civilians at the Kabul airport during the rushed U.S. withdrawal. Now, take a guess where Ayaman al-Zawahiri was residing in Kabul. He was a guest in the house of this very Haqqani leader. This was foreseeable. In the 1980s, um, he was a key figure in the recruiting of Arab militants from the Persian Gulf to join the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda's first training camp was established in Haqqani network territory in Pakistan. This is why it's deeply concerning the possibility of an Al-Qaeda resurgence after the Taliban Haqqani takeover of Kabul last August. Well, in an article that was published last November in War on the Rocks, 
It was reviewed how virtually every independent assessment, including from the U.S. government, the United Nations Security Council and independent researchers at Stanford University had all concluded that the Taliban and especially the Haqqani network maintained strong and growing links to Al Qaeda. It was highly unlikely they would cut ties. Uh, given the situation as it unfolded a year ago. In 2020, the U.S. Treasury Department concluded that al-Qaeda and the Haqqanis were discussing uh, forming joint uh, units of um, armed militants. The following year, a U.N. report described the Haqqanis as the primary liaison between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, despite the agreement that the United States had with the um, militants who now oversee Afghanistan. In August of last year, the president peculiarly claimed that al-Qaeda was gone from Afghanistan. Two months later, a senior Biden administration official testified before Congress that not only was al-Qaeda still in Afghanistan, it had the will and was generating the capability to conduct terrorist attacks on the U.S. and its interests abroad. Again, the good news is that the strike Killing Zawahiri demonstrated that the U.S., even after a full withdrawal from Afghanistan, even with Pakistan-U.S. relations in a dysfunctional state, even without formal uh, overflight arrangements with neighboring countries, still enjoys the capability to strike high-value targets within the country, thanks in large part to the tireless work of the U.S. intelligence community. The bad news is that the Taliban faction governing Afghanistan today is even more operationally and ideologically aligned with al-Qaeda than the old Afghan Taliban leadership. The presence of the man who was arguably the world's most notorious terrorist in a Haqqani-owned safe house in Kabul only confirms fears that Afghanistan may yet again become a safe haven for international terrorists. So two, coin, two sides of the coin, good news, bad news. Uh, Under President Obama, ISIS developed from al-Qaeda and uh, took over a huge part of the Middle East. It created an epic security and humanitarian crisis, and it it, uh, was all because the president at the time decided to make a political show of withdrawing U.S. forces from Iraq as a uh, 2012 re-election plank instead of basing the decision on U.S. national security interests. That was back then. No sooner had uh, President Biden taken office than he ran headlong into repeating that same mistake, withdrawing from Afghanistan so the Taliban could have it back after all these years and after all the blood and treasure spent by Americans. It is a a concerning situation. One leader is gone, but it certainly has exposed a lot of troubling detail of what's going on in Afghanistan without the United States having a presence on the ground. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to talk about Open season on religious hospitals that object to gender transitions. That's next on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, back in 2016, the Obama administration's Department of Health and Human Services issued a rule that would have forced doctors across the country to assist in transitioning patients out of their biological sex regardless of a provider's medical opinion or conscience objections. Now, these two things are critical. If you believe that this is not medically uh, the best course for an individual, that was not to be considered. Well, a provider specializing in gynecological services that previously declined to provide a medically necessary hysterectomy for a transgender man, read woman, 
for example, would have to revise its policy to provide the procedure for transgender individuals in the same manner it provides the procedure for other individuals, end quote. Well, the rule left no room for religious physicians or institutions to breathe. Instead, menacing them with draconian fines were they not to toll the controversial new line. Well, in stepped the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty that swiftly secured a preliminary injunction in federal court that stopped the rule from going into effect on the grounds that it violated the Administrative Procedures Act and likely violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It was a decision later confirmed in 2019 and made permanent by a 2021 ruling. Well, on August the 4th, however, Beckett attorney Luke Goodrich, who's been working on the case since the Obama era rule was first issued, will march back into the courtroom, having been dragged back in by the Biden administration and Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Bacara. Uh, They say that our lawsuit was only about the 2016 rule, they say. Uh, Well, all you uh, were challenging was the 2016 rule and you won that. But now we're using a different rule or a different rationale for imposing the same requirement. And so you have to file a new lawsuit, Goodrich explained. Well, under the Biden administration's theory, the Affordable Care Act provides the administration with all the authority it needs to punish groups that don't perform gender transitions and abortions. The 2016 rule also included language that Beckett alleges would force religious institutions to perform abortions. Well, according to Goodrich, the merits are completely resolved and haven't been appealed. The fight on appeal is about the scope of relief. He described an effort to work around a losing legal argument by burdening religious objectors and opening up new fronts of battle. They want religious organizations to have to play uh, whack-a-mole every time the government violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and they want a ruling that will leave them free to keep violating religious liberty every time they shuffle the same legal requirement from one volume of the Federal Register to another. Well, that strategy is observable in the proposal of yet another, even broader rule modeled after the 2016 rule issued by Bakara. I can never get his right. Basara, Bakara, whatever, who has made his uh, political brand on waging one ruthless culture war after the other. We know that uh, firsthand, having uh, recognized his rule a bit closer to home. Well, as attorney general of California, he sought to punish independent journalists who exposed Planned Parenthood's sale of fetal remains harvested during abortion. The Los Angeles Times editorial board described his decision to charge these involved uh, with felonies, disturbing and uh, progressive Mother Jones called it chilling. He also happily uh, enforced a plainly unconstitutional California statute requiring pro-life crisis pregnancy centers to provide pro-abortion materials to their patrons. And as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, voted against legislation that would allow providers not to perform abortions uh, without fear of government reprisal. Well, in a call with reporters last week, he described the rule as an attempt to make sure that whoever you are, Uh, Whatever you look like, wherever you live, however you wish to live your life, that you have access to the care that you need so that your decisions are based on what you and your health care provider and your physician or the person you depend on for medical decisions is uh, available to you as you can access the care that you need, or at least in this case, the care that you may want. If Greenwich, um, uh, rather Goodwich and his uh, colleagues win on Thursday, that would mean that Bakara's uh, attempt to bully religious providers into submission would be dead on arrival. But that outcome is by no means certain. 
Another victory for Beckett would uh, prohibit HHS from interpreting the Affordable Care Act to require religious doctors and hospitals across the country to perform gender transitions or abortions, and importantly, that that relief applies to its most recently proposed regulation, granting them a more permanent victory, according to Goodrich. But if they lose, the ramifications would be even more breathtaking. If we lose, uh, he goes on to say, that means all these tens of thousands of religious doctors and hospitals all across the country are subject to massive financial penalties. He describes such a scenario as open season. HHS can't start punishing them, uh, rather can start punishing them tomorrow uh, once or if that decision is ultimately made. We will certainly follow that um, that case uh, with great interest to see what the future of uh, those who object to the, the procedures on either medical grounds, religious or conscience grounds will be required to do moving forward. Meanwhile, what's $300 billion between friends? A new report from the Government Accountability Office. It details breathtaking discrepancy between what the federal government claimed the student loan program would generate and what it actually cost taxpayers. The GAO, the Government Accounting Office, explains, although the Department of Education originally estimated federal direct loan uh, loans made in the last 25 years would generate billions in income for the federal government, Its current estimate shows these loans will cost the government billions. That's right. Instead of making $114 billion for taxpayers, as the Department of Education originally claimed, the federal student loan program actually cost taxpayers $10 billion annually, costing $197 billion since 1997, a $311 billion discrepancy. Well, to put a finer point on it, GAO found that the federal student loans were originally estimated to generate $6 in income per every $100 dispersed. Instead, they're expected to cost the government almost $9 for every $100 dispersed. Whoops, just a little bit of a a mistake. Well, how did the Department of Education get it wrong? How is it that they could claim student loans would bring in more than $100 billion in revenue for the federal government when in reality... They cost taxpayers nearly $200 billion. What accounts for this massive uh, miscounting? Well, it's a good question. GAO looked at the Department of Education's budget over the, uh, over the years and found that they were hundreds of billions of dollars off, due in large part to bad assumptions. GAO estimates that 61% of the bad accounting is due to these uh, faulty assumptions. Those bad assumptions included incorrect estimates pertaining to the economic standing of borrowers, underestimating the likelihood of borrower default and underestimating the percentage of borrowers who would enter income-driven repayment plans. Well, the direct student loan program, the largest federal student loan program, accounts for nearly $1.4 trillion of the $1.7 trillion in outstanding student loans. About half of all loans issued through the direct loan program are currently being repaid through IDR plans, which caps monthly uh, loan payments based on income. As the Congressional Budget Office reported in February of two years ago, borrowers who enroll in the program, the plan, tend to borrow more and earn less than borrowers in fixed payment plans. Anyway, that's a pretty hefty mistake. $300 billion off. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.